0: Welcome to the Pastor's Soapbox. I'm your host for today, Eric Dodson, and it's a joy to be back with you. It's always a privilege for me to jump up on the box and I'm glad whenever Seymour gives me the opportunity. Last time I was with you, we spoke about the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. And that episode is really kind of a primer on what it means, what we mean when we say that scripture is sufficient. Today, as promised, I'm gonna look at common and prominent objections or challenges to this doctrine the sufficiency of scripture now last time i told you at the beginning that i think this is a doctrine that is probably one of the most attacked most misunderstood and most neglected doctrines in the church today and it is so to our detriment when we don't understand and fully grasp and affirm the sufficiency of scripture the church is hurt by it and so today i want to make that case by discussing some of these objections, some of these challenges, some of these things that undermine this, the belief in the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And as I do so, I want to challenge you, the listener, to really examine yourself. Some of the things that we are going to discuss today may be familiar to you, and you maybe have never thought about it before as a challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture, but I hope to show you that these things are, and I hope you will examine yourself and seek the Lord, and seek his wisdom, and how you can defend yourself from errant doctrine that would undermine and really negate the power of God's word in your life. So we're going to dive right in. The first and most common objection, and probably the one that is most obvious, is that of liberalism. Now, this doesn't always come to us in an obvious, forthright way. Rarely will you see people, especially in the evangelical church, who stand up and say, I'm a liberal, I deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Instead, you'll hear this cute cliche, this, this cute saying that you've probably heard many times. Are you ready for it? Here it is. All truth is God's truth. Now listen to that. When I say it again, just listen to it. All truth is God's truth. It sounds good, right? It sounds cutesy and cliche. It's become a cliche for a reason because we just accept it without even thinking about it. But friend, I want to tell you that there's a great danger in just accepting this idea that all truth is God's truth and not really thinking about what it means. You see, what this idea does, and it is a liberal idea, don't be mistaken, what it does is it elevates mankind's subjective, and keep in mind, mankind's fallen observations of general revelation to the same level of authority and the same level of power as the scripture. And friends, that's really the best case scenario, this idea of elevating it to the same. In truth, what this is is a is a way for evil spirits and powers of this world to use a cute sounding cliche to convince people to adopt beliefs that are contrary to scripture. You see, we can't use our view of revelation around us, the general revelation of God, and think that because we see something in general revelation, and we want to esteem general revelation as a revelation of God, and think that's on the same level of scripture. What we observe in the natural world is our fallen observances of a fallen nature. And so we can't elevate those things to the same level of scripture, even if we hide behind a cliche, all truth is God's truth. That's a dangerous way, a dangerous in a very slippery slope into liberalism. And I would encourage you, if you've adopted this view before, remember what we talked about. Maybe even go back and listen to the last episode on with a primer on the sufficiency of Scripture. God's Word does tell us in Psalm 19 that general revelation, that creation does tell of the glory of God. It does reveal His glory. It reveals God's glory in such a way that man is without excuse to seek him and to acknowledge him. But it's not in the same way that it describes in that same passage, the special revelation of God, the revealed word of God. In that passage, we don't hear that general revelation is perfect, is true, is pure. But we do hear those things of special revelation, and we must always keep that distinction in mind. Yes, general and special revelation are revelations of God. But one is in a fallen state and observed by fallen men. The other is perfect and is without error. So we must always remember that scripture is God's truth. And of course, our Lord said this on the night before he died, when he prayed for the sanctification of his disciples, he prayed that the Lord would sanctify them in the truth. And then he said, your word is truth friends the world may say and it may sound cute to say all truth is god's truth but jesus said his word is truth let us keep that in mind the second prominent challenge that i see and this one may be more uh more prominent in the church particularly the evangelical church and it's very insidious it's very deceptive and that is pragmatism what pragmatism does is it claims an acceptance of the sufficiency of scripture and may people who are pragmatists may genuinely believe that they accept the sufficiency of scripture but they abs- that, but they assert along with that that sometimes man's preferences in proclivities should determine how the truth is understood and how the truth is delivered let me say that again what pragmatists do often in the church is that they claim an acceptance of the sufficiency of Scripture and often genuinely believe that, but they assert, sometimes directly and sometimes more passively, that man's preferences and his proclivities should determine how the truth is to be understood or delivered. In the best case, this is a genuine desire for evangelism, a genuine desire for the Great Commission to be accomplished and for everyone to be reached, But that usually leads to a dangerous lack of depth in doctrine and it overvalues our ability to reach people. Friend, this doctrine or this approach may seem humble. It may seem like, you know, I'm just doing everything I can to reach people so I adopt these pragmatic philosophies. But it's truly not a humble position. What it is is it's elevating our ability to reach people, our ability to convince them rather than recognizing that the power is in the gospel. The power is in the word of God. So while this approach may seem humble and genuine, it's really deceptively prideful. And I would encourage you to analyze yourself here. If this is what you're doing, if you're thinking, if I just make the best argument and if maybe I soften the edges of scripture just a little bit, they'll come to know the Lord. Friends, don't be so prideful. Now that's the best case, is this genuine idea of wanting to save people. But just like with liberalism, in the worst case, this just provides a facade by which evil powers and spirits are hidden. They hide themselves in compassionate sounding arguments and oppose the faithful proclamation of the truth. The church must be on guard against pragmatism. This is really everywhere in the evangelical movement today. The third common and prominent objection that I want to talk to you about today is the charismatic movement. Now this movement undermines the sufficiency of scripture in a few ways. First, in a misguided view of so-called continuation of prophecy, what is often uh, called continuationism and the continuation of prophecy. Now there I know that there's a spectrum of these things, But it really does rely on the idea that God is continuing to reveal himself in words through fallen men. And the other kind of prominent way that this happens in the charismatic movement is through what's called contemplative prayer. This idea that if we just empty ourselves out and contemplate on God, he'll reveal some new or fresh truth to us. Friends, both of these basically assert that we need some sort of ongoing revelation. Again, it may seem subtle, it may seem, people may seem sincere in their effort to seek the Lord, but this undermines the sufficiency of the revelation that we have. If we're constantly looking for the Lord to give us some new revelation, some new insight into himself, we're undermining the fact that scripture is sufficient, that scripture has all we need for life and godliness. We don't need some new revelation. We need the sufficient word of Christ. And friends, this also leaves us dangerously open for all sorts of paganism and mysticism to be disguised in Christian lingo. Again, the main thing here is the charismatic movement will tell you and will always be seeking some new revelation. We have the all-sufficient revelation. We don't need a new revelation from the Lord. We have his perfect revelation. Now the last and probably most dangerous and I think most deceptive way of undermining a a confession of the sufficiency of Scripture and really in this last category will overlap with what we've talked about before But the most dangerous thing I see that's attacking a true belief and a true embrace of the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture in the church today is an integration of worldly philosophies. We believe that we can bring worldly philosophies along with the Scripture and use those to serve and to build up the church. And what the danger here is is that those philosophies always end up taking over Scripture. I want to show you this from a passage that I preached recently at our church in Elgin, Texas, from Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're confronting him over the fact that his disciples have eaten with unwashed hands. And I want you to listen to the rebuke that Jesus gives to those Pharisees. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that you that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So again here, the, the setting of this is the, an argument over the washing of hands, an argument of the sanitary system. The Pharisees, as it says in verse 3 and 4, had these careful traditions that they enforced to help people stay clean and come to the Lord pure in worship and really to live pure before him. But I want you to notice the progression that the Lord uses here in describing what their problem is. In verse 8, he says they're neglecting the commandment of God to hold to their tradition. In verse 9, he says they're experts in setting aside the commandment of God in order to hold to their tradition. And then in verse 13, he says they've invalidated the word of God by their tradition. You see, friends, it never starts with that last step. It starts with Having a tradition, having a philosophy that leads us to neglect the scripture. And then we're setting aside the scripture in favor of our philosophy. And before we know it, we've negated the word, we've invalidated the power of the word in our lives by exchanging it for our tradition. Now, that's what the Pharisees were guilty of, particularly with ideas of purity. There's self-righteousness on display there that Jesus is going to rebuke in that passage. But how do we see this in our world today? How do we see the adoption of man's traditions that leads us to neglect, set aside, and eventually negate the Word of God? Well, the first I see is the use of psychology to diagnose disorders. The word psychology is its etymology is from the Greek word suke, which means soul and ology, which refers to the study of something. So it's the study of the inner man. Listen, friends, no psychology, no study of the inner man can have a helpful impact when it rejects the queen of the sciences, theology. You see, we don't need secular theory to study man because scripture tells us all that we need to address the inner man. We don't need psychology. And when we hold up psychology in a way that causes us to neglect the scripture, and then pretty soon we're putting it alongside scripture, before we know it, we're negating scripture and what scripture says about the inner man in favor of what psychology says about the inner man. The second common practice that I see of this elevating of worldly philosophies Is the use of secular sociology to diagnose sin. We see this particularly in the current social justice movement. We allow a faulty definition of sin and injustice which is based on the equitable or inequitable distribution of power and privilege. We allow that to become how we diagnose sin and injustice. And then we're neglecting a biblical view of justice and righteousness. You see, friends, we don't need a selective uh, reading of statistics to be able to deal with, whether it's diagnosing, measuring, and certainly not fixing what we see as injustice. But rather, Scripture contains all that we need for addressing sin, injustice, and unrighteousness, for truly bringing an end to injustice. Then the last way that I see that we adopt this idea of elevating man-made or human philosophies alongside with scripture is in politics. This happens when we allow partisan politicians to influence or determine the best view of government and the best view of how to run a society. If 2020 has taught us anything, friends, it's that a government that has overstepped its God-given authority is a dangerous government. But I don't want to spend today railing against the government. I'd rather encourage us to consider how we've allowed partisan politics to cause us to neglect and lay aside and invalidate the Word of God, invalidate the Scripture instead of the Word of God being the tool by which we see all those things. Listen friends, we don't need republicans or democrats or any other party platform to tell us the right role of government as tom askell says we have a book we don't need government leaders to tell us how society should be run we have a book let us trust in the sufficiency of scripture to address these things Now, friends, as I told you, as I was going to go through this today, I wanted you to do so examining yourself. There could be many other specific examples listed, but as I wrap up, I want you to think about this and I want you to pray about this. In what ways are you being deceived by cute sounding cliches like all truth is God's truth? In what ways are you allowing maybe even a genuine desire to see people be saved and to see people come to church to allow you to to subtly but pridefully set aside the Word of God and the power of the Word of God and instead try to make adjustments to what you say or to the philosophy of ministry that you employ in a way that you think would be more attractive to people? In what ways are you allowing sociological data that's fed to you through news organizations to affect the way you see your neighbors. You see the news is never going to encourage you to love your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs 28, 25 says the greedy man stirs up strife and we see that no better than in the nightly news. It's constantly designed to stir you up to hate your neighbor rather than to love your neighbor. So in what ways are you allowing these worldly diagnoses of sin through sociology to affect the way you view mankind instead of allowing scripture to do so? And then probably the most self-examination we need as an evangelical church in what ways are we allowing political philosophies yes, there are many worldly philosophies that we're good at identifying as opposed to the gospel but in what ways are we allowing political philosophies to dictate the way we view ourselves our role in society the role of government all of those things Friends, if we're allowing a worldly philosophy to cause us to neglect the scripture, we're on a dangerous road. We've already seen with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 where that leads. So let me just encourage you to pray. Pray that the Lord would you show you ways that you are undermining the sufficiency of scripture in your life. That you are neglecting, laying aside, or negating the scripture in favor of your own tradition, even if you don't call it a tradition, even if you call it the way you were trained or your party platform or the thing that you learned in college. Ask the Lord to show you where you're negating scripture with those things and then pray that the Lord in his kindness would lead you in repentance. I believe if the evangelical church will once again commit itself to a true understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture and be on guard against those the ways that we're allowing these challenges and these uh, contradictions to the sufficiency of Scripture to influence us, to lead us to neglect the Scripture, that we'll see great growth in the church in terms of our sanctification and in terms of our ability to serve as faithful witnesses to the world which we're all called to do. I pray that this time together and over these last two episodes has been challenging and encouraging and possibly even at times convicting to you. May the Lord bless you.